I said, why should you go to heaven? And how sure? I'm 100% why. Because I believe there's a God. No, that won't cut it. All men believe there's a God. There's no such thing as an atheist. No such thing at all. Even the demons believe there's a God. Knowing it and acknowledging that there's a God isn't enough, enough to save you. These people knew of God's existence, but they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Revelation, we are in chapter 14, verses 6 through 11, in a message entitled, Three Angelic Preachers. The title comes from the fact that our passage speaks of three different angels that will give three different messages during the tribulation. Yesterday, Dr. Brogy noted how during the church age, that time from Christ's resurrection to today, there have not been any instances of true angels from heaven delivering any messages. But the Bible tells us that during the time following the rapture of the church, those left behind will see these angelic beings who will be offering warnings. Let's rejoin Dr. Brogy as he lays out these post-tribulational events. While angels are not preaching during the church age, a time is coming when they will preach after the church is removed. Now, we've already studied in the Revelation that God will use 144,000 Jewish men to carry the gospel to the world. There will be two witnesses whom I suggested to you were Moses and Eliza. And then there are three flying angels who will preach there in midair. If you're taking notes this morning, three angels who give three sermons. The first angel preaches the judgment that has come. He preaches the judgment that has come. The first angel is preaching a sermon about an eternal gospel. And this gospel basically has three dimensions. He gives a good three-point sermons. Maybe he went to a homiletics class. I don't know. But in either case, first he reminds us that this gospel can be heard by all. It can be heard by all. Again, we read here in verse 6, And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people. Now, the Bible teaches that God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. God desires that none should perish. His heart is that all be saved. And so what we find here in verse 6 is this angel who's proclaiming the eternal gospel, and he's flying in midair. It's the word that literally means zenith. It was used in the first century to mark the spot when the sun, typically at noon, was at its highest point in the sky. The Antichrist won't be able to shoot this angel down, and no one will be able to ignore him. People will pour out into the streets, into the fields. They'll get out of their cars, and they will look, and they will hear this angel preach an eternal gospel. Now, remember, this is the time of the tribulation. This is the time in which you've already crossed the halfway point. You're in the second half of the tribulation, shortly after the abomination of desolation has taken place. And I'll show you that chronology when we come to the 17th and 18th chapter. But God has already poured a number of judgments upon the earth. He has let his wrath begin to unfold. And so here is this angel who is to preach to those who live on the earth into every nation and tribe and tongue and people. 
It's an amazing thought to consider. Now, think about this for a moment. You say, well, how is an angel going to preach in a way that everyone from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation will be able to understand his message? Well, God is big. Listen, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, you can believe anything. And that's why the devil attacks Genesis 1-1. In many ways, this is the flip of Pentecost. Do you remember what happened on the day of Pentecost? In Acts 2-6, we're told the crowd came together, the 120 spill out from the upper room, and they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. These Galileans who, who didn't know all these other languages were speaking perfectly a foreign language, and not just the foreign language, but a dialect within the language. It was a miracle. Well, I suppose this will be the reverse. This angel will preach, and the people on the earth will hear the angel's message in their own language. And God is doing this because He's long-suffering. God is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish. God is pleading one final time for people to repent and to return. So this angel's message can be heard by all because they all hear it in their own language. In addition, this gospel has eternal implications for all. It has eternal implications for all. Again, we read here at the start of verse 6, and I saw another angel flying in midheaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth. By the way, this is the only designation of the gospel as an eternal gospel. The King James has an everlasting gospel. The gospel represents everlasting or eternal truth, truth that is unchanged, truth that will last forever. False doctrines, of course, come and go, and they change all the time. Paul warns the Ephesians, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. New teachings are like the wind and the waves that are forever shifting and moving about. And of course, during this time in human history, the pinnacle of all false doctrine will have its way. We're going to see, especially when we come to Revelation 17, this initial one world religion that will change midstream after a miracle happens to the Antichrist. And the Antichrist, of course, his coming, the Bible says, will be in accord with the activity of Satan, with all powers and signs and false wonders. Matthew 24, 24 also teaches that there will be many false messiahs and false prophets who will do all kinds of miracles to deceive if possible. Yet it's not possible, but if possible, it's a conditional statement, meaning it's not possible, if possible, to deceive even the elect. Now, the word gospel here, of course, simply means good news, but it's modified by the word eternal gospel, because again, the gospel of God's Son is timeless. It's unchanged. People have only been saved through the gospel whatever time in human history in which they live. People who lived before Christ were looking forward to the fulfillment of the gospel. The first gospel, I preached a message one time on Christmas morning. I called it the first Christmas message. It wasn't found in Matthew's gospel. It was found in Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel 
gospel was ever preached was there in the garden. And God begins to unfold it all the way through Genesis and all the way through the Old Testament. And so people in the Old Covenant, they were looking forward to the promise of Messiah. We have looked back, but you will meet no one who is in heaven except through the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of God's Son. And that's what the gospel is, that Christ died on a cross, a substitutionary death. The Bible says Christ died for sins. Well, if Christ died for sin and he had zero sin, the only way to understand his death is in your place. He was buried. That's a part of the gospel because that's what you do with dead people. You bury them. And then on the third day, he was raised up, declaring that God had accepted the payment that he had made, that he was sinless, therefore able to serve as a substitute, and that he is indeed Lord. And so all the way through the New Testament, the gospel is described in different words. For instance, it's called the gospel of the kingdom. It's called the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's called the gospel of the grace of God. In Mark 1, the gospel of God. In 2 Corinthians, the gospel of the glory of Christ. In Ephesians, the gospel of salvation. Timothy, 1 Timothy, the glorious gospel. And then the last time it's mentioned here in Revelation 14, it's referred to as an eternal gospel. Now, when we understand the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, that this is an eternal gospel, the good news about Jesus, of God's grace, of God's glory, that you can have peace with God, that you can be forgiven, that you can be saved, that you can have a place for all of eternity in heaven, then indeed you will hold on to it with all of your heart and life, and you will faithfully share it. So here's an angel who's preaching an eternal gospel because he knows it has eternal implications. Think about it. Everyone who has ever lived, everyone who is currently alive, and everyone who is yet to be born is affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's not a single solitary event in the history of man that is like the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has changed the destiny for good or for judgment of everyone who has ever walked upon the earth. No wonder Paul can say, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So this gospel can be heard by all. It has eternal uh, implications, but it's also in the hearts of all. And let me show how that is true. Again, the vision here in Revelation 14 in which the angel proclaims the eternal gospel. It's a future prophecy of something that is going to happen during the tribulation period. This takes place before the seven final judgments, before the seven final bowls of wrath that are described in Revelation 15 and 16. Now, God is giving mankind one last chance. Not everyone has responded yet to the message of the Antichrist. Look, if you will, now at verse 7. Through his angel, it says, and he, referring to the first angel, this first preaching angel, and he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. Because God is interested in the salvation of souls, just as he had Moses 
take a pole and set it high on a standard so that anyone there in the camp of Israel, some two million people could see it, just as God made salvation available to all in Israel, even so God now with a phonomega, we get our word, we reverse it, megaphone, with a loud voice up there in the zenith place of the heavens for all to see, for everyone to be able to hear, even the deaf, Everyone, without exception in their own language, are going to hear this marvelous news. And the message is, fear God and give Him glory. Now, the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, which, of course, demands a self-deprecation, a self-surrender, a self-humiliation. When I hear this, I think often of the words of the Lord Jesus. He said, do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. You should write that out in the margin next to this verse, Matthew 10, 28. Likewise, in the context of this, remember the second half of the tribulation, to give him glory is an idiom basically to repent, to change your mind before it's too late to reject the claim of the Antichrist and acknowledge God as God, fear God and give Him glory because the hour of His judgment has come. Now, there are different words for time in the Bible. There's the word time for a season of time, but this is not that word. It's not the word kairos. This is the word hora, and it refers to a point in time, an hour of time, a moment of time. Payday is not someday, it's right now. It is coming. The seventh trumpet is getting ready to sound, which will release the seven bowls of wrath. And when those are finished, God says, it's done. Then we have another little pause to see what has been going on in 17 and 18. But the next event is the second coming of Christ in the 19th chapter. Again, this happens in the second half of the tribulation. Look at verse 7. Let's read it all now. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of water. Now, why do you suppose that he is turning them to the God who created the heaven? Very simply, God is putting them on notice. All of these judgments have originated from the heavens, and now God is reminding them that they are to worship the God who made the heavens. Why? Because they're doing the opposite. We're going to see in the 17th chapter one dimension of the one world religion is that men will worship the created order rather than God who created the world. And of course, in essence, that's what they're doing with the Antichrist. When they worship and follow the Antichrist, they're following a two-legged creature. Now, because he's not God, unlike the Lord Jesus, who's God and man, to worship and follow the Antichrist is to worship the creation rather than the creator. You say, well, they're just ignorant. They should be excused. No, they know precisely what they are doing. You say, how do you know? Because we've already studied in Revelation chapter 6, when the Lamb begins to open up the seal judgments and the kings of the world begin to hide themselves and the people say, let the rocks fall on us. They recognize what they are experiencing is the wrath of the Lamb. It comes out of their own mouth. These people are fully accountable. 
yet many will still rebel. They are without excuse. Why are they without excuse? Because there's a sense in which the good news has been placed in the bosom of every human man. God, in some respect, has revealed some dimension of truth to people. Paul argues that in Romans 1. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so they are without excuse. The problem is not that man doesn't have revelation. The problem is that he is suppressing that revelation. For even though they knew God, not that he uh, knew Him in a personal way, like in John 17, 3, this is eternal life. I met a woman this week and her husband, he was 92, she was 87, shared the plan of salvation. Praise the Lord, both received Christ. God's so good. Uh, nonetheless, I said, why should you go to heaven? And how sure? I'm 100% why. Because I believe there's a God. No, that won't count it. All men believe there's a God. There's no such thing as an atheist. No such thing at all. Even the demons believe there's a God. Knowing it and acknowledging that there's a God isn't enough, enough to save you. These people knew of God's existence, but they did not honor Him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. People today have the creation that shouts God's attributes. In addition, we have the ministry of the Holy Spirit that convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And yet thousands of churches across America every year now celebrate what's called Evolution Sunday. Why? Because they have manufactured a God in their own image. I've never let Tim Keller's so-called books on apologetics be used in this church because he's so a so-called Christian apologist, and yet in that book, he argues it's okay to be a theistic evolutionist. Oh, no, it's not. You cannot wed Mother Nature with Father God and come up with theistic evolution. It's absolute heresy. And now, just last week, this man released a survey that I should take as my church to see if we're friendly to so-called gay Christians. Listen, gay people are welcomed here, but there's no such thing as a gay Christian. That is an oxymoron. So here is God shouting from heaven, turn to my son through this angel. Now that's what the first angel preaches, that judgment has come. But with his warning, he gives this message that can be heard by all. It has eternal implications, and in one sense, it's in the hearts of all, and that God has already given some revelation of himself. Secondly, this angel preaches that Babylon has fallen. He preaches that Babylon has fallen. And I suppose this angel, too, has attended a homiletics class because he, too, has three points to his sermon. First, Babylon is fallen. Now, as soon as the first angel is done, kind of like the old tag teaching preachers, you know, in some of the uh, uh, old churches in the 1800s, they would, they would have these meetings and they'd have tag team preachers. And preacher would preach for an hour and someone would come up and tag them and the next guy would go for an hour. They sometimes would go all day long and you could come and go and hear these men preach. Well, the next preacher steps up, the next angel, the second angel, and another angel, a second one, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon. A second angel appears and he pronounces final judgment on Babylon. And he says it twice to underscore its absolute certainty. 
The angel speaks of Babylon here as if it's already fallen, as if it's as good as done. Now, we're going to study this in great detail when we come to chapter 17 and 18. It hasn't happened yet, but this is what linguists call a future preterist, where you describe something as if it has already happened. Just like the Old Testament will often use what we call a prophetic past tense. Now, there's no such thing really technically as a prophetic past, but you would write something in a past tense when you want to underscore the certainty of a future event. And so in Isaiah 53, it says, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried past tense. Yet we ourselves esteemed him, esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. This is a messianic prophecy concerning the Lord Jesus. 700 years before it happened, but linguists and writers and prophets of God would sometimes put a prophecy in the past to underscore the certainty of its future fulfillment. And so this angel is shouting, fallen, fallen, fallen is Babylon. The obituary has already been written. It's absolutely guaranteed. But then he makes a second point. Not only is Babylon fallen, Babylon is more than a city. It's more than a city. Now, we're just being introduced to the concept, and we've seen John do this before. He introduces us to something, and a few chapters later, he gives us a full-blown explanation. This is one of the reviews and previews of things to come. And another angel, a second one, following, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now that's an impressive statement here that he mentions Babylon. Remember, 404 verses in the book of Revelation, 44 of them concern this system, this city called Babylon. That's 11% of the book of Revelation. We're going to learn when we come to the 17th chapter that not only is Babylon a religious world system, but it is a literal, actual, physical city built on seven hills, and we will see, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, that it's actually referring to Rome. But right now, he is affirming the fact that Babylon is falling, and he describes it as a city, but far more than a city. Now, think about it for a moment. There are two key cities that are mentioned in the Bible that are mentioned more than any other cities in all of the Scripture. Number one is Jerusalem, the holy city, as the Bible defines it. It's mentioned over 800 times in the Word of God. By the way, do you know how many times it's mentioned in the Quran? Zero. That's right, a big, fat zero. And so they claim Israel and Jerusalem is theirs. It's not even mentioned in the Quran. In either case, it's mentioned over 800 times. The very first time in Genesis 14, the very last time in Revelation chapter 21. Well, we're going to discover in the 17th and 18th chapter the great emphasis that God places on Babylon. And Babylon is mentioned some 300 times in the Bible. The very first time we're introduced to it is in Genesis 10. 
And the last time we will see it will be in Revelation chapter 18. And just as the city of Jerusalem represents the plans and purposes of God, Babylon represents the plans and purposes of man. We're introduced to it, if you remember, in Genesis 10, if you were here for this series in Genesis. And in Genesis 10, there's a fellow by the name of Nimrod. Nimrod is a type of the Antichrist. There are all kinds of types, pictures, given in the book of Genesis, like Abraham up there on top of Mount Moriah, giving his uniquely begotten son. He's a picture of what the Lord Jesus did for us, also on top of Mount Moriah. So there's all these types and pictures and illustrations. Nimrod, of course, was the fellow who orchestrated a a one-world movement, and they built what's called the Tower of Babylon. Now, the word Babel in Hebrew means confusion. But if you were reading it in Greek, and there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament, most of you know that is the Septuagint. It's not called Babel. It's called Babylon. And so the first century reader would have immediately picked up on it, and they understood that Babylon is this picture, this type of this one-world philosophical perspective on how a man should worship God. And of course, Nimrod is described as a mighty hunter of a, a, a mighty hunter of man, but you never literally actually see him hunting with a bow and arrow. He's a hunter of the souls of men, and he does it with a false world religion. And of course, they built this tower, and they're not, they're not trying to build a, a, a tower that literally somehow they can build it high enough and get up there and see God. No, it's, it's a tower that reaches the heavens, the text says, and it's a picture of the zodiac, and they have found many zodiacs across across Babylon. It's the acknowledgement that man should worship the stars rather than the God who created the stars. You say, well, is the Babylonian religion popular today? There are many expressions of it. We will see its final expression in the 17th chapter, but millions of people even today follow their horoscopes. I hope you don't do that. You say, I just kind of like to play around with it. That's like a man saying, well, I'm just going to flirt with this woman. It's evil. Don't let that into your home ever. But understand that half of young adults in the United States now believe in astrology as a science, and millennials follow it as a way of life. It was just released. Pew Research said that 58% of baby boomers, that's my age, 58% of baby boomers attend church on what they call a weekly or at least once a month basis. 18% of millennials attend church on either weekly or a a once-a-month basis. And many of these millennials have rejected traditional Christianity, and they have embraced astrology literally as a science. You know, when I was a boy, when you met someone, they would often say, well, what is that name? That 92-year-old man, no, his 87-year-old wife said to me, well, what is that name, Brogi? I said, well, it's pronounced really Brogi, and it's Italian in origin. But that was a common question when I was a kid. Now, people don't ask that anymore. Now, today, when young people interact, it's not simply, well, where do you live or what do you do, but what is your sign? 
They're interested in your sign. And if you know anything about the newest expressions of astrology, they're integrated with body piercing and the tattooing of the body with sexual immorality. And so a fascinating study that we're going to do in the 17th chapter is there's coming this one world religion. It's going to be centered in a place of seven hills, specifically Rome. The Babylon referred to in the Revelation will be more than a city. It will actually be a philosophy. And we'll look further at that tomorrow when we conclude our message, Three Angelic Preachers, from Revelation 14. To listen again to today's study, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV38. Search the Scriptures is committed to introducing people to Jesus Christ and to growing Christians in their relationship with Him. We'd be honored if you'd come alongside us with a one-time or a recurring gift to allow us to broadcast these studies on radio stations and across the Internet. For more information, call 877-787-7478 or click the Give button online at searchthescriptures.org or using the Search the Scriptures app. Tomorrow, the conclusion of Three Angelic Preachers. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.